0: Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kunal, your host, and today we are honored to have Paul Loeb on the show here at the New Voting Project, an American social and political activist um, who attended Stanford University um, and New York's New School, Uh, for social research and worked actively to end the Vietnam War, uh, though it seemed like a long time ago. I still study that in school. Uh, You know, it's actually, I'm having a test on it. So maybe we can talk about that a little later. I'll
1: give you the answers.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Um, You are also the author of this book right here. I'm holding in front of me, Soul of a Citizen Living with Conviction um, in a Cynical Time. Um, which has over 170,000 copies in print. Um, it's it's a fantastic read uh, for all you aspiring activists um, and politicos out there. Uh, and you also helped found the Campus Election Engagement Project, um, a national nonpartisan effort to get more college students involved in civic engagement and, and elections across the United States. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Of course. All right, so let's get into these questions. Um, so the first one for the viewers, uh, talk a little bit about your background um, and touch on how your education at Stanford at New School kind of prepared you to take on the roles that you did.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I came up, as you mentioned, I came up in a you know, particular time with particular challenges, with Vietnam being one of the salient ones and got involved in, well, I guess actually sort of in high school. And um, originally started out as a supporter of the war and then changed as I learned more and ended up leading some student strikes and um, um, was you know, heavily involved, and then went on to Stanford. Was was really active there, and I think one of the lessons, well, a couple a couple of lessons came out of that period. Um, not necessarily, I wasn't thinking that much in terms of electoral elections at at that point. Retrospectively, much more so. But um, you know, one is that citizens really did. You know if they acted and persisted long enough had the power to change major policies um the other you know less happy lesson is that that movements were perfectly capable of um, metaphorically and sometimes occasionally literally blowing themselves up and destroying their own ability to make change by just letting their anger completely run run wild and uh not being strategic and driving away potential supporters. And both both are were really true, both continue to be true uh at, at at this point. And so that that's sort of, you know, those are lessons that that carried with me going forward. I think electorally, um, you know, it took me a while to like, so sometimes I know mean, you start out and you're just you're really involved in the issue and it's it's easy to get purist and there's a there's a concept that i write about in soul of a citizen called the perfect standard which is about uh, how people often st- sort of apply it to activists and say they they just have to be absolutely perfect and you know if there's any contradiction you know you could never take a car to drive to a climate change demonstration because that would be betraying everything and that might be the only way you could get there um, and so it's a way of writing off and dismissing social change. But people also certainly apply it to um, elections and they apply it to the candidates. And, you know, sometimes you work really hard for, say, in the primaries for a candidate and they don't make it through the primary. And so then you have a choice. And I think oftentimes people feel like, um, how I say it, it's, that that voting is uh, this is something Rebecca Solnit actually wrote about pretty well, one of her essays is you know that it's it's sort of like a romance and it's like the person you love the person who is your soulmate and this you know this elected this candidate is the person who just gonna carry all your hopes and you know sometimes if you you know are at the right point of history accidentally and you work really hard and others do you can that can happen but but more often what happens is you've got two people. They have strengths, they have flaws, they have things you agree with, they have things you don't agree with, and one of them is going to exercise power, sometimes significant power, everywhere from you know, a um, city council person, to a mayor, to a governor, to a legislator, to a person, senator, or president, and so people get in the box of the purist trap, which is just sort of like, well, if it's not the person that I want i'm going home and i think i saw some of i think some of that kind of came as a legacy out of the 60s it, it, you know it happens recurrently in in, in citizens movements and so i think one of the things that i've learned in the certainly in the period since is just the value of being persistent for a long term vision but also being practical and pragmatic and saying okay here's the choice you know what you who you vote for is going to determine um, along with who others vote for, who's gonna be in office, and you you can't back away from it just because the candidates aren't necessarily ideal. So I think that was in some sense a legacy that that, that came out of that experience.
0: Yeah, and I'll be one to tell you there's actually elect, there's a special election happening in uh, in a district near to me um tomorrow. So <laughs> there's a lot of pressure riding on on my candidate um and 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 the establishment. but yeah, no, thank you, thank you for that insight. Yeah. I can really relate. Um now let's let's move towards your work with with uh, campus election engagement project um that effort that you started you know explain kind of why you, you wanted to increase you know voter turnout voter education yeah. at, at the collegiate level and what you ultimately hope to accomplish
1: Yeah well, it's interesting because now, I mean, we have I've just recently phased out from running it and we've got a really, just a neat CEO named Max Thorne, who's, a, who's right. a vice president of the NAACP and human rights right. campaign. And just, was really welcome
0: to come on the show, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. He's still getting his feet with, with a million, million different, you know, fundraising calls and this and that, but, um, uh, you know, very, very impressive person. And in my case, what happened was, this was 2008 and because books like Soul of a Citizen and there's another book of mine, The Impossible, will take a little while that also really took off, and they took off particularly on campuses. So, you know, tens of thousands of them were you know were being read, and I was doing a lot of speaking at college campuses and speaking at conferences. And in 2008, as people may you know recall or you know what they read, is there was a lot of energy around Obama's initial run and. There was a lot of youth energy. And it struck me that schools could do a lot to get people, all of their students, whether they opposed Obama or they supported Obama, to get them to participate. And they had to, to, you know, if, if you're acting as an institution, you really have to be neutral. You really, you know, it's just not appropriate to take a stand on one candidate or another. So the question is were there things that they could legitimately do? that would help all the students on their campuses vote? And the answer was that there were. And what those things were, a few of them, I had an instinctual guess at the beginning. Most of them would be revealed over time, uh, as we you know as we learned. So we I jumped in, you know, raised a little bit of money from people who helped fund some of the outreach on the books, uh, and worked through a lot of existing networks. And basically, the goal was to take yeah, it still is, um, is to take a have a campus, take responsibility for getting its students to vote. And so, what does that mean? That means. Everything from helping them register, obviously, in most states, that's a requirement, and navigating them through the registration laws and navigating through in most of the states where we worked the often really pretty daunting and, I would argue, problematic uh, voting laws that were aimed on, in some cases to to prevent them from voting. and But the schools could do a lot and, and sometimes had to. I mean, Ohio's laws are almost benign now compared to a lot of the places. Uh, but they were one of the first to do some of the voter ID laws. And one of the things that, that was accompanying that is if you were living on campus and you wanted to register to vote. Um, you had to have a letter from the president right. or chancellor right. able to register. So so it wasn't just like optional for the school. It was mandatory if they wanted the, the students to vote. But I remember that very first year, like in 08, the law had just been passed, I think. And most of the schools had no clue because, I mean, there was a sort of government relations department and they're maybe taking note of it. But the people, you know, the faculty, the student affairs, they had no sense of it. And they literally just didn't didn't know. And then a few schools had, you know, met them and we used, essentially we used what the, the initial schools as templates for the others. And we did that in general, which is a school would come up with a great idea and then let's replicate it. And so the project started in 08, did I then sort of went away and thought, oh, okay, I'm going to go back to writing and did another edition of the edition you wrote of you read of Souls, the second edition that I wrote during that period, but uh, I sort of thought, oh, well, those schools will know what to do, and and of course, you know. One of the lessons of change is you got to keep you know, keep at it, and you got to keep monitoring it. And, and so, they they absolutely did not. And, and you know, comes 20, 20, 2010 and the the turnout just completely plummets. Not you know, not just on campus, and, and not just with youth, but did. And so, I'm thinking, well. Uh, I guess maybe we they're going to need a little bit more help and encouragement and cajoling and nudging and all that. And um, so then relaunched in 2012, initially for presidential and then later for off years and then year round, because what you do in one year builds the ground for for the next um, like you know, getting voter registration and or orientation or getting a student ID that meets voting ID standards uh, for the state, um, those kinds of things, or an election day holiday or a polling station. And so a lot of it was just really just kind of about the practical ways to, that a school could again, navigate students through, like on the voting laws, the, the metaphor that I've always used is, um, I, I think it's like a bunch of pits, like half dozen pits of alligators between you and the voting booth, and there you are, and you're like, oh, well, here I am. I'm at school, and uh, you know, uh, I guess I could vote, but here are these alligators and you know, big teeth and they look hungry, and you know, I don't really care about it that much, so I'm staying home. And metaphorically speaking, I felt like our job was to build a kind of bridge around so you didn't have to fall into the alligators and encourage people to vote that you know wasn't. That that hard so you know something like that including encouraging students to volunteer, um, it it became pretty clear I think by the relaunch in twenty twelve they said well do you have um, like are there candidate guides because our students don't really know the candidates and, and how do they distinguish them? And I said, well, you know, doesn't the League of Women Voters do that? And they're yeah. like, well, yeah, and then they do, but they're really long and our students aren't going to read that long. So we developed the format for these now if you go to guides.vote, you can sort of, you know, you can see our guides, um, a format for these guides where it was really I mean, it evolved over seven or eight years, but the basic concept, which is here's an issue, climate change, uh, you know, voting rights, uh, reproductive rights, or, you know, pro-con on, a, on legalized abortion, um, and, and they would be neutral, and they would basically, uh, you know, tax policy, student financial aid, and then essentially they would say what are, you know, where do the candidates stand? And as it got more sophisticated, it would be where do they stand, but here's a link, like a quote with a link to a mainstream media source so that you could really follow it out and understand that this was credible and not just like... Somebody's grabbing something off of a you know a friend's Facebook posting or something right, right. that may or may not be true, uh, and we had we got a whole team of veteran journalists to participate. In, a lot of them volunteered their time and done a lot of off-campus groups. Ended up using them, which which was really cool. Um, you know, from, from Vote .org to Black Voters Matter to Rock the Vote to you know lots and lots of groups. And so um, you know, but that was something that again we didn't really think of. i didn't think of it at the very beginning but then when the schools start asking it it was like okay well i guess we better come up with something and again landed it's interesting when i look at this very first guides yeah they're different they're not quite as sophisticated but they're still the same basic concept which is okay here's a candidate. where do they stand
0: right
1: yeah um and then you know by the end by now it's where do they stand? And how do you know that that's where they stand? And that's where we, you know, start hyperlimiting them and the rest of that. So, um, you know, and then just, you know, and we start working with the schools, no idea really at first, like, would they, would they respond? I mean, you know, like, you know, who's, I mean, I did know a lot of people through my lecturing, but still like, you know, I'm telling them what to do. Are they gonna say, you know, hell with you, you know, or are they gonna say, yeah, good idea. And somehow we managed to frame it in a way that they said, yeah, good idea. We're happy to help. And, you know, gradually over time, built up relationships with the schools, you know, to the point where they're sort of looking to us and they're saying, hey, when are your guides going to be ready? You know, what about that essay a while back about political cynicism? Our students would be kind of useful for that. So that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in my humble opinion, I I would argue that. These kinds of, you know, projects, these kinds of, you know, like, basically a database of information um, about local politics, you know, whether it be national or federal or municipal, at the very least, they should be institutionalized, you know, folks need to understand that when it comes to policies that directly impact you, is that road going to be built? Is that street lamp going to turn on? Are my, you know, is my electric? Why is my electricity bill so high? Let's blame PG and E for once, right. uh, but that's just because I live in California.
1: It's where, where they burn everything down.
0: <laughs> yeah, apparently, um, and then they tell us to not use, you know, the AC when it's ninety degrees outside and right. The, right. the sky is orange. Uh, right. So, you know, th- those kinds of acts need to really be ingrained as as extremely important um, in in, in changing how how our societies function. Uh, But I guess I want to move on and ask, you know, you obviously were very successful um, in your career as an author, uh, but why did you, there's so many facets of influencing policy. Like I work on a lot of campaigns, you know, I spend my time learning about candidates, understanding them, going out, walking door to door, strategizing, raising money, everything in between because yeah. i like my niche right but why why choose becoming an author you know writing analyzing why why take that path
1: yeah that's an interesting question i think i i mean because i started out again it wasn't about campaigns but it was about activism and i started out acting well see one thing led into that so i mean even i go back to stanford they were, at that point this is pre-silicon i mean silicon hewlett-packard hadn't started but it was you know very nascent silicon valley um <laughs> and it was kind of a backwater almost and i remember where there was a lot of stanford itself was in the top i remember top 40 top 30 military contractors in the country i mean it was way up there and you know to try and make our case for why this wasn't an appropriate university function which we didn't think it was uh what did i do well you know we wrote an op-ed in the stanford daily and know because then we can show it to people and we can say here are our arguments so i think i think from you know the beginning for me writing became interwoven with with activism um and then later on i after college there was a small political magazine called liberation that very illustrious history; it had been around twenty years, and like Martin Luther King had written a letter from Birmingham Jail, and its pages, and, and Nelson Mandela had written for it, and you know some pretty amazing global figures. Most of them were dead or gone by the time I got around. Right. Um, and um, you know, and it was sort of like, okay, well, what is, what do we need to be talking about now? What are the issues? How do we, how do we look at the culture? And so I think the and that was where i sort of did some of my very first writing and and it was describe it i mean i have and then this this is just for me because i have friends who are writers and they just love to write and so they will write about anything and Mm -hmm. you know it'll be sometimes very good writing but for me i think the writing would be to serve some purpose. And that doesn't mean, i describe it, doesn't mean distorting reality. I mean, that there's way too much of that, and there's way too much writing that does that. So it means being true to reality, but woven in is saying, hey, I want people to think about something. Um, I want them to think about uh, something that might affect the world. Um, and so that always drove my writing from the start. On um, occasionally occasions, at the very beginning, I was writing about, you know, all sorts of things that, that maybe weren't very political. But I think that where I really found my voice, it was writing about people's relationship to the world and to larger issues. I, I did a book on, uh, it was at that point, the largest nuclear complex in the world that had created the materials for the um, first, uh, not not for Hiroshima, but, but for the Nagasaki bomb, and um, you know how people were dealing with that legacy, and um, in some ways avoiding that legacy, and and so I think the issues were always kind of driving the writing, and then later, um, you know, I sort of flipped the script, and when I started Campus selection Engagement Project, then well, I kind of stopped doing writing um Mm. partly because i'm going to sort of really express myself uh and think about everything i leave i I believe in and it's tied to a nonpartisan project then if i'm you know honest about you know this particular person's choice or this other person's choice it can come back to bite us and so now you know I, i sort of just now reclaiming my voice is like okay i'm no longer running it and you know they're doing what they're doing and uh which i you know still highly supportive of and, and you know in every way I can but I can be freer in my own voice um I think that's sort of part of the you know the, the evolution
0: um yeah yeah no I I think writing is like like we were talking writing is the, and reading understanding um you know and amplifying those issues is kind of how we learn as a yeah. school, you know um everything that I guess I could ever recall had to have come from some pages within a book. Right, Um,
1: or an article, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And then of course translated in an experience that I've probably had um, in the political sphere. Um, Right. So yeah, no, I'm I'm not knocking it at all. I just wanted to know why.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. But Um, I think that is is the genesis is that for me, which again, different from other folks, it was um, trying to make an argument. you know, I mean, I. It's interesting. I just finished. I guess this is really sort of the first piece I've published post campus election engagement project. Is um, I was reading the 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 book um, Ari Berman's excellent book, uh, Give Us the Ballot, on on the sort of post um, voting rights post sixty five voting rights bill struggle for voting rights. And one of the things that I did not know was that. When the act got reauthorized in '82, yeah. Bob Dole was the hero. I mean, it was just there was nobody who played a more critical role than Bob Dole. And you know, Dole was a you know, basically quite conservative, uh, you know, Kansas senator, majority leader later, candidate, Republican candidate for president. Um, and I just I didn't know this facet of his of his background, and it really you know it it, it fascinated me. So I just wrote a piece, and I don't. I don't know. It's a very long shot that it'll have the intended effect. But I um, I talked about, you know, Dole really uh, being genuinely courageous in challenging his party to stand up on, you know, on voting rights. And I sort of put out a moral call to well, there aren't that many Republican moderates, but the, you know, the Mitt Romneys, the uh, Lisa Rakowski, uh, you know, Susan right. Collins, like, you know, so it's, it's running, uh, you know, in the, in the Salt Lake City paper. And I've sent you the, you know, the main paper and the in Alaska paper, you know, it's like, at least they'll read it. They'll, they'll, they'll read the argument. And the argument was, you know, you ought to step up on the filibuster as well. And don't, don't duck responsibility on these Voting Rights Act. If you say you're, you believe in Voting Rights Act, right. Mm-hmm. In Voting Rights, I, you know, again, I, don't know. I mean, you know, the long. uh You know, I, I probably have better odds of getting breakthrough COVID than changing one of those senators' minds.
0: I don't doubt that.
1: But, but you nonetheless, know. you make the try, and you make the argument, and you make the moral appeal, and you know, you see what happens.
0: Exactly. Um, you know, can't hurt to try, and it
1: can't th- hurt to try. Yeah. I,
0: one thing I can't, you know, I can't almost fathom is that voting rights is so central to our democracy. Yeah, um, that both parties and at some point, you know, we can have a philosophical debate about what these parties actually, you know, um, funnel down to, but the dire polarization between those two, you know, diametrically opposed, you know, principally and ideologically um, parties is that both should be Encouraging the right to vote. It's better for both parties if, if more right. Americans yeah. are getting out and voting on yeah. their beliefs. Um, and I actually want to turn to 2020 and talk about right. it, because the voter turnout, you know, some about 160 million. You know, Joe Biden, of course, won a couple uh, more million in the popular vote, but about seven more it, it, million, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to see this conservative reaction and voter suppression laws and you know, um, voter restriction laws across conservative states in the United in our country. After such a you know, such a great election, where all the scholars were, right, this is what democracy is supposed right. to right because they're
1: their their people turned out, and the Democratic folks turned out. And that's a, you know, that's a good th- and that participation is a good thing on both sides. Right. So, yeah, they should, you know, it's like, hey, all right. how else do we get more people to turn out? Right. And the, you know, and it's very, I guess that's why you know, the Bob Dole, you know, Reading that just really resonated with me. It's like you know what I, you know, Everett Dirksen was the majority leader who really was Johnson's prime partner in getting the Voting Rights Bill to begin through in '65, and Dole was the person who, you know, took the lead in in '82 when it looked like it was just going to not get renewed. And you know, we're you know, we need one of those folks now. We need many of those folks now. Exactly. Um, and and it's it saddens me. Um, yeah, you know, because you don't, you can disagree on tax policy, you can disagree on abortion, you can disagree on how to structure, you know, an economy, you can disagree on a hundred different things, regulation. You still ought to be able to, you still should feel like the vote's sacrosanct.
0: Right. Yeah. But we can't be cynics, can we?
1: Yeah.
0: I guess what that, that's what the book does.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's actually funny because the Original title was, and if you know this, I think what you know because I think it's in the introduction. But I I is originally was the subtitle, it was always Soul of a Citizen. Right. But it was the original subtitle was Living with Conviction in Cynical Times. Right. And then when you do a new edition of a book, you've got to distinguish it from the old edition in some way or you, you know, people are just going to get confused. So, okay, we can't use cynical anymore. And, you know, maybe the times are less cynical, I don't know, uh, maybe they seemed less cynical for a brief window. And so, I, you know, I changed it to challenging times, which it certainly is, but now I just feel like, yeah, it should be cynical times, but yeah. I don't know if I do a third vision, I guess I can go back to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's just you, but, um... You know, having gone through the intricacies of the political process, I've run elections at every level, municipal, state, federal. Um, I've had a lot of fun. I made a lot of friends. Most of them are on this podcast, who I will plug. Uh, But I do feel burned out, you know, I feel because a majority of the time I'm losing. You know, okay. sure. There's there's a couple outlier wins, and yes, I feel good in different districts. Wow, you know, we're actually making some change. Yeah. But even even getting one person on a conservative city council, um, isn't going to change much. If if I tell you honestly, you know, you you can be, yeah. be the outlier vote on, on on anything that's progressive, but right, you'll still right. lose. Right. So I want to ask, how do we as young people, as as engaged youth, and maybe those that are also ignorant or just alienated, exhausted, right? With the process, what is your advice to us going in? Yeah, well, this? there's
1: certainly people who are pre—I would call it—I don't know for like a better word—preemptively exhausted. That is, they haven't stepped in yet, but they look at it and they just say it's too much to begin with, so they're not going to step in. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of those folks as well as the people who go through the revolving door and get very involved and then they're boom, they're gone. It's hard. I mean, I think well, because I've been doing this a long time, um, yeah. you know. I started well, so I started in high school, um, and so we're we're talking, gosh. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to do the math. Well, you, don't have, you don't
0: have to say the number on <coughs> camera. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's a long time. Let's yeah. just let's just say that it's that yeah that is actually more than fifty years, and that's a really long time. So how do you do it? I think you. Um just came back from a run with a friend of mine who um, got we got kicked out of Stanford as anti-war activists together. He was the only draft age person to testify. Pete Knudsen, who's in Soul of a Citizen, uh, you know, testify on the draft. And he's still very active. Um, you know, he's telling me about this, you know, lawsuit on public access to tide lands that, you know, he's kind of spearheading um, and organizing you know, people to, to get involved in, you know, and um, so I think you do it by recognizing a couple of things. One is you don't know which of the many things you're going to do is going to actually be a key, be key. You know in making change i mean just never do there's no way i mean you can look back and say oh yeah here's, this is clearly a historical turning point but no one at any historical turning point recognized in advance that that was going to be the i mean they knew they might say yeah you know this is a real key lever for change this might make you know real difference we could see where if you do this then something else will happen but it's nothing you can ever guarantee so you know, to be able to just say, OK, you're going to try this and then you're going to try something else and you're going to try something else. Now, that doesn't mean that you're describe it. You still want to be strategic. You still want to think through, all right, here I am uh, or here's a group of folks. Where can we make the greatest impact?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, where can we apply our energy, our creativity, our vision, our vote, our dollars, uh, our time, you know, all that stuff. Um, how do we draw in other people? Um, how do we multiply the impact? So, you always want to be strategic, but, it, and, and this is really hard. You want to also be able to kind of let go of the results at any point and say, okay, sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're not going to win. And it's if over the course of your life you continue. You're going to win some really important things. Or you're going to be part of winning some important things, but you're not necessarily going to know in advance. And sometimes, sometimes you don't know who you're going to bring in. I mean, that's that's the other thing. I mean, I mean, this is a story from *Soul of a Citizen*, but um, yeah, I remember. I mean, you know, whether one likes Obama or not, when certainly, you know, obviously a major historical. You know, figure, right. and I remember writing you know, talking to. those curious in his his genesis, and you know, it turned out that there was. At the school he was at Accidental, there was a in, in um, California, uh, there was a um former Green Beret who'd come back from Vietnam disillusioned with the war and sort of started a student activist group. Uh the and the student anti apartheid movement was surfacing around then. You know, so he, the group was organizing around that, started building it up, trying to get the school to divest from South Africa, get, you know, that is to basically get rid of any whole same similar what people doing climate change on uh, fossil fuel companies to get rid of companies that are invested in south africa and what was interesting is that the very first point that obama ever got involved was you know with that group around that movement but he actually never met that green beret because green beret graduated. i'm blanking on his name graduated in spring obama comes in fall Right. but you know and and they've never they never meet they never did meet the guy i think the guy died a couple of years ago and you know uh, but the others in the group who carried it on were, you know, created something that this young guy from Hawaii participated in, and then it goes on to become, you know, community uh, be organized and become a president. So, you know, one can argue, I would argue that that, um, you know, that that person who started the group had this, you know, very significant, whether good, bad, or whatever, very significant influence on history by bringing Obama in, but, but, you know, never met
0: the guy, Yeah, never no,
1: knew, you know, so it means
0: it transcends, it's, uh, I guess, original creation, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Translated his original creation. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, that's just sort of one example that, that, that came to mind and thought of it in a while, but, um, you know, you just, so the, it, it's the uncertainty and uncertainty can be bad. I mean, I think a lot of us are dealing with the stresses of the COVID uncertainty after we sort of thought it was beaten back, um, right. you know, at this point. But uncertainty can also be good in the sense that the, in any particular effort, you don't know how it's going to really turn out because um, it's always going to have unforeseen, you know, circumstances, including the question of who, you, who do you bring into involvement. Yeah. so i think that i think that helps people to keep going and then you just keep doing one thing and another and then you know well, eventually I mean, I you look far. back after 50 years and you think damn yeah. guess you've done a lot of things some of them were some didn't but you know i think the world is at least somewhat better because of the stuff that you've done you know yeah. that's certainly my perspective my friend beats you know others i know have been around even longer so
0: yeah no i mean i got this far so let's see what another 50 years can do
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um I guess let's talk about this digital age that, that you and I live in. I mean, we're having this this interview over Zoom. Right. Uh, right? Crazy, if you were to think about, you know, maybe a couple decades ago. Uh, right. Unthinkable. And, you, you know, we see TikTok, Instagram, you know, large social media platforms right. that are used, I guess, originally intended to spread information, but I guess are truly just an entertainment service now. Uh, right. Some folks. Has social media made you know, the upcoming generation cynical towards politics. Um, yeah, I, it's, I mean, I, you know, I have to, I mean, I'm,
1: you know, they talk of the digital natives and the non-digital natives, and I'm probably the, you know. And
0: I'm an old soul, so, you know, I'm, you know, impartial to this.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I think I don't swim in it as much as some folks do. Right. Um, and certainly the... The constant distractive phenomenon can make it hard to ask the questions of what's really you know what's important, what do you want to do what do you want to accomplish i mean it's and I think all of us are digital natives or not are subject to hey, hey, there's going to be this little thing that I can hold in my hand has something really interesting, and then I'll go follow it out to something else, and here's somebody else, and they're posting this and you know, and, and it's. I mean, there's a whole question of you know misinformation and and you know, I mean, would be we, well, I don't know. A good question whether we would be if we didn't have social media would be handling COVID better, possibly. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, and then on the other hand, you look at campaigns that are organized and you know people who mobilize, you know, without these tools, it would be impossible. Um, I guess the the challenge to me is always how do you use, I mean these mechanisms are here. Right. There are debates that are legitimate ones over whether they should police lies more aggressively, because it's very clear. I mean, I remember again, we had a we were talking, we did a piece at camp a sort of resource on disinformation and how to understand it at at um, uh, you know, for campus election engagement project, and didn't want to come up with anything really. I mean, there's certainly lots of lies, but some of it is so politicized. But, but the one I ended up was, you know, there was a young guy in, gosh, was he in Romania or um, I'm blanking? But he was—he'd never been to the U.S. and I, maybe Belarus or Romania. I can't remember which it was, uh, but you know, somewhere in that that corner of the world, and he. a fan of trump and he started posting things like you know pope endorses donald trump and uh, um, a bunch of things that were just not true i mean just like you know not arguable not judgment call not great you know just wholly made up and they got they were in the top 10 you know most viewed postings you know way more than you know new york times or cnn or any of the you know, the stuff, and and it was just this, and he'd never been to the country. You know, he just decided to start posting this stuff and he, and somehow, it, you wow. know, he had an instinct for that. So I, I don't know, I guess, you know, how do you use those technologies to promote truth and right. not lies? And truth can, you know, you can have different political perspectives in truth, right. but it's different from just lies. And then, of course, how do you pressure those institutions that have become the gatekeepers of knowledge for the whole society to have some, you know, not sensorial power, but to basically say, you know what, we're just not going to be a platform
0: to promote lies. But you know, it's hard. I have to, I have to ask then, what if, what if the inf- the disinformation and the lies stems from for example, the, the president of the United States, right. yeah. Donald Trump. What what right. do, what do we, we do then? Right. When our commander-in-chief is lying. Yeah. Yeah. Just completely
1: lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um and it's different. I mean, I go back to Bob Dole. I didn't you know he ran for president. I didn't vote for him that time. But I don't think he was he wasn't in the habit of spreading lies. Um, you know, he had arguments. I disagreed with those arguments right and um but I could do that and respect him. exactly. And when you are simply making things up then and then you know, a press secretary says, well, it's just alternative facts i I think you I think, I think, think you have to have a- facts. you have to work for a culture where where there is a sanction and a penalty online. I mean, because otherwise you just you can't really have a good de- vital democracy if people can just completely get away with lying.
0: Right. I think the word, uh, just the phrase "alternative facts" is oxymoronic. Yeah, I
1: don't. Yeah,
0: I don't. <laughs> I don't it's, understand.
1: It's it's a polite way of saying I'm li- we're lying, but yeah. it doesn't have the mor- it doesn't have the moral stigma. <laughs> I think you've got to have the moral stigma on lies. It's just like you know you this is somebody is lying to you, and it it has consequences. I mean, I remember. This was um, after 2016,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I ran into a young guy at a party. We were just talking; as a musician, and we were just talking. And I was, you know, asking whether he'd voted or not. And he'd, yeah, he, yeah, you know, how you know, he voted in the primary, and um, he was a Bernie supporter. And um, I said, "Okay, that's great." And uh, what about the general? And he said, "Well, you know, uh, Bernie told us to vote our conscience." So. I voted third party, and I said, "Well, I don't think that's what Bernie was saying." And he's, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, well, where did you see this? Well, you know, it was all over the internet. And so, you know, one can make an argument: should somebody vote third party? Should they not? Whatever. But the point is, he was basing his action on a lie. Bernie was not saying that, you know, by the, end of the general election, he was not saying that. So so it's just like, I think it, it, it's really tough. And I mean, I think you have to ultimately have, you know, this is something I've been thought about for a long time. I mean, what I would call is connected communities versus disconnected. So if you have a lot of sort of horizontal bonds with people, uh-huh. then you know you've got some people who potentially can check you when you say you know bernie said vote third party when bernie is not saying vote third party and saying the opposite and and then it's like oh this actually isn't true but if you're more isolated then i think the the lies breed more easily and of course you know covid probably furthered all of i'm sure it did you know because we're all sort of all in i hunker down isolation Right. Um, But it's much larger than COVID,
0: obviously. Yeah, yeah, the type of relationship. Uh, Now, I want to, you know, make an emphasis on our world, our civilization is riddled with, I mean, existential crises across the board, Uh, internationally. You can look at just in the US, some folks don't have access to clean water. There are half a million folks on the streets without homes. Right. Um, we have right. to do with climate change. At least my right. generation inherits that.
1: Yeah, yeah. These I are, mean, our, we yeah. had beautiful Seattle summers. Now we, now we how we're going to plan for this yeah. toxic smoke.
0: A, yeah, I have a crimson or orange sun. And right. every year I'm dealing with fires and extreme heat. Right. Um, it yes, was we the highest are too. recorded temperature in Sierra Nevada this past summer, like 131 Fahrenheit. Yeah. Great I mean, numbers. Yeah. I mean, there are demoralizing issues that Gen-
1: genuinely demoralize. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Has the human soul and spirit been crushed by the weight of these, you know, seemingly insurmountable problems?
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope not. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's, you know, I mean, so, you know, are the, you know, when I look at you know, look at something like climate change, and you know, it's just the you know to see, you know, again, you mentioned the Warren sun. You know, it's just I remember I was in the Bay Area taking the BART. I'm so take the BART to the airport, fly back to Seattle, which of course generates some carbon emissions, and right. um, you know, then I'm you know take the BART the our our light rail back, and the sun looks like an, a post apocalyptic science fiction novel right. cover. You know, and it's just like oh. That's what it does now. So I, I would say that in any situation, certainly I think of this as climate change, there are a range of outcomes. And the range of outcomes on climate change, which I've written a lot about, are right at this point from pretty bad to absolutely unthinkable apocalyptic. And the difference between pretty bad and unthinkable apocalyptic is, is really huge. you know i mean it's significant it's it's you know and and it's worth fighting for with everything we've got but it still means that some of the days they're going to have that apocalyptic sun under the best case scenario and there's still going to be more hurricanes and i mean but we can get through it versus those far reaches of the scenarios where we just you know yeah, you know, it's almost, you know, it's almost unthinkable cataclysms, which are which are really real and possible. So I to me it's still on that question of can can you, if you, can can your actions make a difference? If you don't think your actions can make a difference, then you're not gonna act. If you think they can, and they're not gonna create a perfect world, but they're still gonna make a difference. And maybe some things will be significantly better in the process, you know, and and, and have been. Um, that's worth fighting for.
0: Right.
1: You know, and so I guess to me that's that's part of that question of 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 long, persisting and you know, and longevity of action.
0: Right. And what what can we do, you know, within our own circles or broadly, or using social media to to compel you know, everybody essentially nobody. There's no you know exclusivity here. Right. To to believe that their actions can make a difference. As cliché well, as it sounds.
1: Yeah. No. As cliché as it sounds, it's really at the heart of it all. Yeah. So, I I think you tell the stories because people forget. You know, you tell the stories of actions that made a difference, and you know, often unexpected ways Certainly, that's tried to do in Seoul, but you know. Um, you know it's certainly something i've done for a long time and mm-hmm. you know and that allows people to see a window of possibility yeah. and then you reiterate again and again that even if you're not going to get the perfect world or get it instantly that it still matters that it's still worth fighting for um and and that's i think that's the heart of what you have to do is to give people a sense again it's um we have these posters at at Campus Election Engagement Project, your vote matters because people said my vote doesn't matter. So we're like, okay, your vote does matter. We're going to say it, you know, or our votes matter, you know, change it a little bit. But um, it's that sense that you don't know the action that you're going to take. I mean, another electoral example, which is a while ago now, 2004, where um, I was mostly focused on, I wasn't running SEEP but I was mostly focused on the national stuff, but I knocked on doors in one of the neighborhoods in Seattle and we had a governor's race. And I got three people to vote that day and it wasn't because I was that brilliant. It was because one of them forgot it was election day and one didn't know how to return an absentee ballot and one needed a ride. So I'll just, you know, total practical things that are all solvable within our, you know, in the little intro that we'd gotten before we went out and anybody would have had the same results. and then. It turns out to be 134 votes in the state of, I can't remember, about five and a half million at that point, you know, that divides the governors after three recounts. And, you know, it's okay, I'm doing some math. And it's like, okay, I got one fiftieth of the margin in my one day of volunteering. Wow. You know, that stuck with me. And again, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have to write books to do that. I didn't have to be a speaker. I didn't have to do any, you know, I had no, it didn't require any skills, except the ability to walk a precinct route. That was it. You know, almost, you know, most folks could have done it. You know, no, I I remember And if they didn't do it by, you know, on foot, because they're too frail or whatever, they could do it by telephone you know, and have some, you know, somewhat comparable results. I've done both.
0: Right. I I distinctly remember just a couple weekends ago, um, I was walking for, for my candidate who's running in the special election. It's pretty, you know establishment you know the democratic party and all of that that and versus a progressive social activist attorney so i'm of course mm-hmm. on the highly progressive side and one of the most progressive districts in the country apparently uh but folks can't seem to understand the difference because of money in politics but that's a separate conversation right you right have a little later. and i remember running into a voter walking the streets he was uh tending to his garden um and i come up to him i have my you know leaflets and I'm passing out information. You know, here's your nearest polling location, and he tells me, "I'm not even registered to vote. Um, I stay away from this because I don't know enough. Right. What's right. going on? I don't know, and I, I don't have the time right. to to spend hours researching yeah. these candidates yeah. and making the best decision."
1: Right, right. Um, that's why. That's why we did those candidate guides, and so many groups right. used them because people didn't have the time.
0: Right, and I spent 20 minutes, almost 20, 25 minutes with the voter explaining details about this election, why it's happening, who it's happening for, how it's going to affect them. I gave him, I texted him, I gave him my personal cell phone. I said, "You call me, you have any issues, you call me." And in this it's a special election in an off year. Um and so there, the the turnout's going to be relatively low and the the election's going to be decided within a couple thousand votes. I know that I, yeah, yeah. So I know that one vote that I may have convinced could have made uh, you know, I'm monstrous impact on the election yeah yeah that's just my little sermon of the day i guess
1: yeah well it does and i just i yeah. mean like as you as i had to stop the email because you know because we're talking but i was composing an email. i um we have democracy vouchers which is a really cool thing in seattle where you get four each person gets four twenty five dollar vouchers and uh, I think it's 25 or 50 now. I can't remember, but basically you sign them and you give them the candidates. And, you know, if it's a household, it's 200 bucks. It's, you know, wow. it adds up pretty quickly. And. Um,
0: That's such a great idea. We should do that in California.
1: Yeah, you absolutely should. It's really power. And, you know, it's not perfect and you can just, you know, you, they tweak the rules each time to kind of, you know, as people try and get around it and there's packs pouring money in and less, but nonetheless, what it does is allows people to run without, you know, Just chasing the big donors. It's really a great idea, and I had this idea that um, we're in a mayor's race, and I emailed the person. I said, you know, you didn't. You really should do yard signs. They didn't do yard signs the first round. I said you've got to do yard signs. I said why don't you also put on, you know, to donate to, you know, or volunteer or donate, including democracy vouchers. Visit LorenaForSeattle.com and or .org I guess. And they're like, oh yeah, that's a pretty good idea. And and you know, and it came out in part because I was. My neighbor, we have a block party, and my neighbor had said, "Hey, you know, I still have my democracy vouchers. You know, who should I give them?" I said, "Just give them to Lorena; she really can use them." So, um, you know, it, it's it's a way of recognizing that people's actions get multiplied. And in that email, I, I was reminding the, the city councilwoman, who was a friend of mine, who was also was a supporter of Lorena, that you know she had a th- volunteering matters that you know she had a thirty nine vote city council race. Um, you know, after a bunch of uh, recounts and I'd had a house party, it was a bust, had like five people. It was pitiful. But one of them became super volunteer, volunteered for six weeks straight. So then it actually wasn't a bust because that's worth six weeks straight of full-time volunteering is worth more than 39 votes, you know. So, you know, you never know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think as we come to a closing, I'm gonna ask you a very simple question. Sure. Um it could be yes or no, but I'll let, I'll let you take the stride on it. Um, is voting important?
1: Yeah, it's incredibly important because it, I mean, it's people are like, oh, it's impure. This whole sphere is so corrupt. I don't want to get involved with politics. I don't want to sully myself. But the fact is, these huge choices are getting made constantly and they affect people's lives. You know, and is there going to be a budget for public health? And what's that budget going to be? And, uh, you know, how are you going to handle a threat like COVID? How do you, I mean, I have a, you know, I have a, I bought a used leaf two years after it came out. So I've been driving, you know, an electric car, but that's an individual choice. Is, you know, i glad I did it. I put solar panels in my house, but you can't, you can't solve it just by these individual choices. Right. And the resources that allow People to do that at scale and lend them the money and give them a subsidy, whatever it takes. If you're going to solve climate change, you've got to have major governmental action. If you're going to solve racial politics, you can't have governments like, oh, well, you know, we have nothing to do with it. It's just like, you know, just so happens that every, um you know, month or two or three, uh, our cops happen to shoot somebody, you know, often, you know, sometimes needlessly. I mean, you know, sometimes I have, you know, friends whose daughters, uh, New York City cop, you know, sometimes they got no choice, but, um, you know, sometimes they do have a choice and um, you've got to deal with it. And so it doesn't matter what the issue is. Um, You know, are we funding our schools? What are our schools going to be like? Any of those questions, they're public choices. Who's going to pay for any of these choices? Well, is it going to be the people who can least afford it? Or is it going to be people who actually, you know, have spectacularly you know, amounts of money that, you know, beyond any imagine. Um Because that's, that's the you know world we're now living in. Um, so to abstain from that, it just, it's, it's giving up your voice in a fundamental way. And it can't, I mean, I'm certainly, I believe in protest politics. I believe in organizing politics. But if you give, if you give away the vote, you're just giving up something so fundamental because it affects everything.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you embrace it and you the chance to make a difference with it, then a lot of change becomes, you know, becomes possible. I mean, you know, people, you know, if this reconciliation bill passes, people are going to aff- be able to actually afford without, if they're not affluent, to have somebody to take care of their kids, right. you know, while they're working. I mean, that's huge. Or pay their rent or mortgage or whatever. I mean, it's just. It affects so much.
0: Yeah, and universally, yeah. everyone. Universally,
1: yeah, everyone.
0: everyone. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's you know. the, it's the absolute best note. Uh, yeah, I mean,
1: we're just emerging from a 20-year war, and that 20-year war—it
0: absolutely shit, like absolutely shit. Yeah, yeah, and that 20-year year was launched
1: by a presidential administration that got a minority of the popular vote. And got in with 500, and I can't remember if it's 34 or 36, I think it's 534, yeah, yeah. you know, votes
0: like that,
1: you know, in yeah. Florida. You know, with some pretty ugly stuff going surrounding, throwing away the votes of some other folks. Um, you know, it was incredible close and you know, 20 years of war, you know, country shattered and you know, a lot of people dead. So these are huge choices, I, I think.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I'd have to I'd have to concur with that. Uh, these, these are powerful words. And is there anything you'd like to add before before we kind of...
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, if you people want to check out the books, uh, probably the easiest, yeah, soulofacitizen.org <laughs> or theimpossible.org is the... They all go to the same place. Theimpossible.org is the easiest to spell, you know, easier than spelling my name, you know, although paullobe.org suffices as well. Yeah. And then just to act and, you know, and to get engaged.
0: Of course. Uh, Well, thank you so much. we had a very insightful uh, and and deep conversation, and I do appreciate you coming on. Um, Oh,
1: well, my pleasure. All righty.
0: Well, good luck. Well, thank you so much. Bye. Peace.